I heard that Elvis did yesterday. Yeah. So I thought, I'd never heard that, so I've got to listen to that. Because he gets the lyrics wrong. <laughs> it was during his flaky period. <laughs> what did he say? I tell you that well, it, it, it gets the last verse wrong. But the thing these guys always do, I wrote, uh, um, to, to why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say, I did something wrong. How long for yesterday? Well, Elvis and a lot of these guys who, I must have done something wrong. It's like, you know, they're not admitting it. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe once I did something wrong, you know. Well, they're just covering their bases there. Exactly, aren't they? a little <laughs> disclaimer they in there. I best. must have done something wrong. I don't know. Welcome this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm Lonnie Pena. Well, Lonnie, the big news that we've had this week is Patty Boyd is putting up a bunch of her stuff for auction at Christie's. It just seems like every week there's something going on. The price on some of these things are pretty high, but there's actually some reasonably priced things. Is that right? Okay. Reasonably priced being multi-hundreds <laughs> of pounds. So This is just 100,000 pounds for a No, no, just, just hundreds. Photograph. Uh, but, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a George Harrison postcard, for example, that I'm looking at to Patty, which is really only estimated at two to 3,000 pounds, which if it goes for that, if it doesn't go to an obnoxious price, then that's actually a pretty good deal. Yeah. I wonder, why is she doing that, I wonder? I Good yeah, question. Just, I mean, you know, it's time to clean up, clean up time, spring cleaning. <laughs> that's what I kind of think. Maybe yeah. she just doesn't need or want all this stuff around. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Share it with the public. Got a price. Oh, they've got one of the Apple lighters and the Apple tie clip. Oh. You know, we, we've seen pictures yeah. of those. Yeah. And that's yeah. 400 to 600 pounds. Again, if it goes for that, the handwritten stuff, the hand drawn stuff is. Much more expensive. Yeah, I saw that George Harrison. It's like a label of an apple tree. It's sort of a fake all things must pass label. Okay. Amongst the titles on uh, here is Hello Dolly and F.O. Dolly. (laughs) So those just made up. It's also kind of a parody. So you you clearly had some of the titles. The the last one, title number six is the Ballad of Eddie Klein. Eddie Klein being the Apple engineer. Yeah. Now, now we know that Patty and George didn't have kids, but did she have kids with Eric? No, she did not. So she has no kids. She was probably unable to conceive is what most people seem to think. 
So no adopted kids or, or nothing. Would you really want to have a kid with Eric Clapton? <laughs> well, I don't know what was going on post-Eric. She did have another husband, but by that point, she was well into the Probably late 40s, 40s, early like, 50s, which yeah. for a woman is certainly, you don't want to be doing mom stuff at that age. Yeah. Well, I was just curious. Maybe that's a uh, reason she's letting go a lot of this stuff because she is, there's no one to pass it down to. That's certainly part of it. Yeah. And the stuff is valuable. It is. Why just have it on the shelf? If you're a retail store, that would be wasting money. Best leave it to someone who will really appreciate it mm-hmm. and treasure the stuff. Although some of the stuff she's letting go is really pretty personal stuff there's a love letter that eric sent to her this is a letter it says express and urgent on it to me at fry park and i opened it with trepidation because i could sense there was something kind of hot in here and here's this letter with the tiniest writing imaginable and it starts off Dearest L, I'm writing this note to you with the main purpose of ascertaining your feelings towards a subject well known to both of us. Oh, my love, E. I showed the letter to George and I said, oh, George, look at this weird one I've got from a fan. And he sort of like, oh, yeah, dismissed it. Later on, the phone rang and it was Eric. He said, did you get my letter? I said, no. I mean, yes, I got a letter, but I didn't know it was from you. I thought it's from a fan, you know. So he said, no, it's from me. And I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah. So I think George was recording an awful lot and not really paying me much attention. And then so Eric came sneaking in. Yeah, this was while she was still married to George. Uh, you can own a piece of that love triangle. <laughs> <laughs> the original Layla cover art. Nice. So, you know. While she the, was still married to George. <laughs> Was that while she? Well, that was seventy-one. Yeah, I guess so. That is while she was still married to George. Uh, but uh, and then you know, lots of personal photographs, including George photographs. An outtake from the Living in the Material World cover session. Yeah, is this stuff available now? You go okay. to onlineonly.christies.com and you will see the Patty Boyd collection. It will bring up photos of all hundred and eleven items that are for sale from Patty Boyd, let's say. I could window shop. If you have $1,000, you might be able to afford one of these items. I'm just holding on to my bucks for these deluxe sets that that are coming out later this year. (laughs) I'm not going to win it, but I actually may put a bid in on the Apple lighter because the estimate is between 400 and 600 pounds. For $1,000... I would pay that for the Apple well, Lighter. Then, then you have to buy a display to put it in. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's another grand. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an item which is not outrageously expensive, which I wouldn't mind having. Well, between your collection, Ed, and my collection, I think we should just have a big open house <laughs> and charge accordingly. We can do the museum and do live podcasts from it. Well, every person that enters, we can give them a free VHS tape. <laughs> so that's, how you, that's how you get rid of all your VHS tapes. So. That's right. I'm thinking of that. You know, that's on my mind still. <laughs> so you can clear out that warehouse and stop paying on it. Every minute's a dollar. You wanted to talk a little bit about the Sam Mendes, the four biopics. Yeah, that fascinates me that they would have a new material, maybe? Or what is it? They haven't told us what exactly they're doing, except for the fact that there's four biopics coming, one from the perspective of 
each Beatle, yeah. and they've set a release date of 2027. Um, Were we going to see any new stuff? I don't think they're going to record a new song, but Paul and Ringo might do some incidental music. Ringo has already issued his support for this project. All four movies will be released in 2027. That's interesting. Not staggering in them. With a to-be-announced dating cadence that's, quote, innovative and groundbreaking. What's a dating cadence? I guess maybe how they, I don't know, technology, how they look throughout the years, maybe. Probably. The the, the dating. Uh, Ringo reacting on X. Have you heard the news? Oh, boy. We all support the Sam Mendes movie project. Yes, indeed. Peace. Wow. And love. Sounds like we are entering the Beatleverse in 2027. (laughs) Can't wait to hear more on that one. You got to figure that they are going to be putting out a soundtrack, at least one soundtrack. They may have four soundtracks. Maybe music they have from the Beatles that's never been heard or just outtake has never been heard. That's certainly a possibility. But then again, this is not going to happen until what, three, four years down the road, maybe. What Sam Mendes has said is that they are scouting locations now, and the plan is to start filming next year in 2025. Now, we don't know how they're doing it. There's any number of ways they could do it. They could do the whole story from each of the four Beatles perspectives. Or one of the things I've been thinking of is, you know, maybe they're just going to do sections. Like, you know, you do the Hamburg and the early Beatles from John's perspective, and then you switch to Paul's perspective for the middle period, and then then Ringo's for the White Out Mirror, and then and George's finally at the end. You got the entire story covered in these four films. I better not cancel my Disney Plus then. <laughs> they haven't said what they're going to do, but they have said that it will be a unique theatrical release schedule, whatever that means. All righty then. And you were saying that you're going to try and get your daughter to see if she can get some. <laughs> I already put a bug in her ear. She's in production coordinator for various movies in Los Angeles. And I put that bug in her ear. So. Well, they're going to be hiring lots of people. They're going to be doing posts on four films at the same time. I like it. They're going to have to be hiring lots and lots of post-production people. And she lives not far from Culver City, right down the 10. They call it the 10. If they're going to start filming next year, by the end of next year, they would have to be starting on editing and doing post. That's a full year. The thing which is a little bit troubling is they've also said they have no scripts yet. Oh, well, there you go. Um, that's, that's what my daughter wants, to write scripts. And <laughs> then she needs to get a hold of Sam Mendes ASAP. <laughs> and she read the book when Paul met John. I made her read that book in high school. <laughs> then you and I can get in on helping her write the script. Yes. And <laughs> in, in the premiere. <laughs> we might get to meet Paul and Ringo. Yeah. And for once, maybe we'll be invited to the listening party or the viewing party. And we might be able to get one or both of them on the show, huh? It is all planned out, folks. This (laughs) is it. uh, I don't think they're going to hire a newcomer as the main writer, but they may need additional writing support. Again, they're writing four biopics at the same time. They haven't said how they're going to do it. I would look forward to seeing it. I mean, the like I say, the logical thing from my point of view is you, you spread the whole story 57 to 70 out over these four movies. You have a handful of overlapping scenes. I just hope it's not one of those movies jumps back in time and then forward in time and then back in time, get back and forth. Uh, I don't think they're going to be doing four identical types of films. I think the John film is going to be very different from the Ringo film, for example. 
Okay. However, they do it. You know, they may do that in one of them. Like I could see them doing that in the George film. Well, whatever they do, it sounds interesting. Yeah, we just sounds- don't know what it is yet. You got your inside. You got your daughter with her ear to the ground, both for a gig for herself, and we would love to have behind the scenes stories for sure. Definitely, we're working on it. All right, we have covered the first two episodes of McCartney's Life in Lyrics podcast season two. So Lonnie is back and we are going to cover episodes three, four, and five this week. I think they're up to five right now, right? As we record this episode, five has just come out. And actually, by the time you get this, episode six will not be out because they come out on like, what, Tuesday or Wednesday or something. We will be up to date when we finish this. Awesome. Buckle up, folks. (laughs) So as I'm sure you noticed, they changed the intro. Yeah. Just a little bit. You know, I listen streaming and I'm I'm not paying the premium. I did. And so I get a lot of commercials, (laughs) which I don't mind. I'm driving, you know, most of the time when I'm listening to this stuff. So, but yeah, it is a a nice intro. It's a little bit weird that sometimes when you download, you get two episodes in your download. I know. I noticed that. Yeah. You get whatever episode you downloaded, and then there's just one other season two episode on the back half. And it's, like, it's like an EP. You get two songs <laughs> on one side. The two episodes that I covered with Love Me Do and then Band on the Run, that's episode one and episode two. So we move on to episode three, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. <laughs> it's the infamous Maxwell's back, folks. <laughs> you thought you heard enough? You, you want to hear more? Jamming? (laughs) Well, we got it. So at the very beginning, the preamble, Paul talking about he used to drive up to Liverpool in his Aston Martin and go a little bit too fast. Just a little heavy on the foot there. And much as you were describing, he wasn't listening to podcasts because, well, there were no podcasts at the time. But he would listen to the BBC. Yeah, and they had what stories. They had radio shows. From what we've heard really throughout this whole thing, the BBC aired lots of radio dramas. It would dramatize lots of things. And Paul was an avid listener of such things. I heard of things like this from my parents that grew up in the 30s, 40s, you know. But during my time in the 60s, there was no radio shows that I heard of because this was obviously in the 60s, right? Most of that had moved (laughs) on to television by that point. Right, right. But BBC had radio shows. Radio dramas, and they would dramatize plays and put them on. Mm -hmm. So this play was this weird little thing, and the main character is named Ubu Koku. Ubu Jubu. Well, you got to think that that also influenced (laughs) Paul in naming. uh, Yeah, that's what I thought of when I heard it. It said Ubu Jubu. (laughs) So there's where he got that. At least that's where he got Ubu from. Right. The author is a gentleman named Alfred Jarre, who clearly enjoyed his narcotics. Yes, indeed. (laughs) But Paul continues that he just loved the character Ubu. And then he talks about how the play was actually kind of rude. And there were lots of little <laughs> dirty comments throughout there. Me, a young man in his early 20s at the time. All these little dirty <laughs> things appealed to me. I like to hear when people were being rude. 
Well, you know, BBC, I guess in England, they had a whole different perspective on that subject because, you know, Benny Hill. <laughs> it was only late at night in the U.S., but I'm sure it was mainstream at the time in England. And that was a little naughty. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, just so, a little bit. Just as we might have suspected, <laughs> Paul was one horny little bastard. Let's leave it at that. That could be the name of his biopic. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Suggest it to your daughter. She can go to Sam Mendes. <laughs> I think Paul will approve that. <laughs> One horny little bastard, the Paul McCarty story. We then go into the intro. We come out of the intro with the Get Back version, which we're now pretty much all familiar with, which is certainly one of the earliest run-throughs of Paul doing Maxwell with the band because he's calling out the chords to them. Yeah, and if we've had bootlegs back in the 70s and 80s. Half that bootleg was rehearsing Maxwell. And then we get the documentary, <laughs> what, two, three years ago. And we get Maxwell. But we actually get a clean version here. I mean, the, yes. the bootlegs always had talking over it. Now we can actually hear Paul leading or trying to lead the band in learning this song. And, and it also <laughs> lets you know, yeah, now you can see why John and Ringo got tired of Maxwell. It's Paul up again to his production. Paul's doing this green yeah. song. Again. Do we really want to do it? Oh, well. We got to get songs for the film. Absolutely. Continuing talking a little bit about Alfred Jarre, the author, and his science of pataphysics, the science of imaginary solutions. Maxwell always confused me. Just the whole song as a concept confused me. So this little podcast really brought to light some things I didn't know about the song. It may have been written somewhere, but I just maybe forgot or just didn't know about it. Now it kind of all gels for you a little bit more. Yes, yes. He talks about his buddy, Barry Miles. Barry Miles, who owned or was co-owner of the Indica Bookshop with Peter Asher, as Paul describes him. Barry Miles. And he was very bookish. He looked bookish. He started the Indica Bookstore with a couple of others. I used to just go around to his house. And we would just have dinner, and we would just talk. For hours and hours. Yeah, he was a bookworm. Well, for sure. And, of course, he would then go on to write many years from now. That's right. Going on, talking about the song, the surrealism and madness of it all. Science in the Home is almost like a title. Surreal, but suggestive. More of that dirty talk that Paul liked. Yeah. You know, he had a formula that he used. This particular song... I think the whole concept was cool at the beginning, but then it kind of turned very dark. Yeah, they've already talked a little bit about Manson when they talked about Helter Skelter, but I mean, that kind of had to be in Paul's mind as well. And that's what confused me about the song. I remember when I bought Abbey Road. I didn't buy Abbey Road when it was released. I bought it some years later. I bought it in 73. Abbey Road just blew me away, but this particular song was just, to me, it didn't fit in the album. I kind of like that variation. It's a little bit of the White Album thing where you have something kind of different. It was different. It suited better, I think, for the White Album than Abbey Road. It would have been interesting had it actually gone on Get Back. And then the song itself confused me. 73 as a teenager. I was like, okay, why is Maxwell hitting people? <laughs> why is he hurting people? I don't understand. Why is he a serial killer? <laughs> why did you think of that until, <laughs> you know, until the podcast? <laughs> it kind of goes back to Paul when it suits him. The Beatles were always about peace and love. And, you know, I'm glad we never talked about anything violent. Well, Paul, you're talking about something pretty violent right here. I think it would be a great Netflix 
serial killer drama. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Another thing I can pitch to my daughter. <laughs> she wants an original, and then she probably wouldn't be able to afford the Beatles version of it, but you get some hot band looking for a break to cover yeah. it. And then the ending credits, they could play Maxwell. <laughs> Silver Hammer. Paul Muldoon suggests whether the name was based on famous scientists, James Clark Maxwell, the father of electromagnetism, and oh. Thomas Edison. And Paul's like, well, no, not really. You know, I just like the rhyme. He just liked the rhyme. Edison, medicine. But it works, though. He should have went with it. He said, sure, of course, I was thinking of that all the time. You go with whatever anybody else says. Right. Sure, that works. That's fine. Then on to the actual sound of the song. They talk about Robert Moog actually coming over to Abbey Road. That is really cool. And we don't hear yeah. that much about it. I knew it yeah. happened because, I mean, the Moog that was there was actually George's. You have the picture of this big module against the wall <laughs> yeah, with a keyboard in front of it. It's amazing because it really does look like one of those old time telephone exchanges. Yeah. You got wires yeah. going everywhere and you yeah. got all these little plug holes. And before you hit the keyboard, you had to wire it up correctly. Yeah. We later saw that in the 70s with uh, Keith Emerson was famous for having that big module synthesizer on stage with all the patch bays, you know, on it. Paul continues, George Martin was always keen on innovation. He's probably the one who invited to move over. I don't know about that. George Martin, while he was open to all sorts of things, I don't know if he would have necessarily been the one to come up with getting the Moog. We know the Beatles first really heard of it when George was in L.A. in... And I think the Beach Boys used it early on. Well, and so did the monkeys. Yeah. That was all almost immediately after when George was there on the Jackie Lomax sessions in 68. That would be the first time that he actually saw the Moog, and that would be why he would then come back and order one. They must have used it during the spring of 69 when they were recording Abbey Road, and they were recording I Want You, She's So Heavy. Yeah, that's where the white noise came from. Yeah, so Maxwell was not the first song they used the Moog on. Ken Townsend, a maintenance engineer at Abbey Road, recalls the Moog's first use on a Beatles track. It was because, and the Moog was a bit of a marvel instrument. To get that French horn sound, it took a whole set of flight cases full of jack plugs and filters. We're back into Maxwell. Paul admits that, well, I mean... We're now entering a dark world, a really dark world, almost like a noir thing. As a teenager, as I just mentioned, this totally confused me. We're all cozy, but now he's going to kill her. Why? It's serial murderer in some ways. Yeah, he is a serial murderer. And now we've, whoa, we now got into a much darker world. That's right. 50 lines was a standard punishment in detention. I don't know how they punish naughty children in elementary school nowadays. The only time you see people writing lines is Bart Simpson at the opening of The Simpsons every week. <laughs> I have many pages that I wrote back in the day. <laughs> I will not talk in class. <laughs> I had homework that I had to write a thousand lines or whatever. That was my problem. I talked in class. <laughs> Muldoon continues, the silver hammer was like a medical thing. 
I'm thinking like Chrome or something. No, we know what it was because we saw it on Get Back. It was a big anvil and a hammer. Paul now sort of brings in the idea of surrealism. I don't know why I wanted to do a sort of dark comedy, because it is a comedy. And there's certainly a comic aspect to the song. It's it's dark. There are people being killed. It's all in good fun. You know no one's really getting hurt. I can hear that. Of course, the song is a poppy song. So that's the comedy part of it. It's a dark story, but it's a poppy song. The Moog is just so cheery. Right, right. Maxwell was never my best song on the album, Abbey Road, but they kind of overused. They overused the synthesizer on that song. It's much better used than Six O'Clock. It's dated the song as a result. Whereas I Want You, where it's just white noise off the move, that is much less dated. Or Here Comes the Sun. It's nice. Conversely, I would say that the Moog in Six O'Clock is not dated. It's a very similar a sounding part to what he does in Maxwell. Yeah. But for this song, yeah, it's it just dates it, and then uh, it's really confusing. <laughs> but this podcast here that we this, – this McCartney's podcast, though, it has clarified some things for me. What I learned, which I didn't know before, was this bit about PC-49. Yes. You know what? I thought that was part of this laboratory that Maxwell worked in, and it was a drug. But it's not a drug. I always knew it was a police constable. I didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't know where it came from. Yeah. And and so it, it turns out that, you know, again, we're talking about radio dramas, and Paul is a kid listening to the BBC. PC-31 came about because... Paul had listened to this radio drama as a kid about PC-49, Archibald yeah. Barkley Willoughby. Yeah, it all makes sense. It's not a drug. <laughs> I thought it was like a vitamin or something. Or something, yeah. Well, I mean, again, than you what got, it is. Well, either that or you could go the other way, and it's uh, yeah. something he's doing with the dead people he has. Uh, <laughs> or his polygon. <laughs> yeah, that could be as well. But it was another radio show that he used to listen to as a child. The Adventures of PC-49 yeah. was a BBC post-war radio show. You never know when Paul got his influences. The most interesting thing about this whole series is listening to Paul talk about himself honestly definitely but this is one of those little factoids it's like oh i didn't know that and that is like you said the most interesting thing about these uh podcasts we then go back to the song paul is saying don't support him too much girls <laughs> and, you know again it's kind of back to the manson girls and, and how they the family just took charles manson to heart and he's kind of comparing the girls in court to the Manson family. It's also about certain people are infatuated with serial killers and they write them in prison even to this day and they get married to them. <laughs> so here's Paul saying the same thing that we were just talking about, that it's all tongue in cheek. You know, it's not a real story. It's like a children's nursery rhyme, you know, chop, chop off your head. It's a big tradition of that stuff. You know, nursery rhymes are always chopping off people's heads. Humpty Dumpty's always dropping and cracking. Well, you know, back then those cartoons were always really dark when you think about it. The thing they parody on The Simpsons with Itchy and Scratchy was the way things actually went at the time. Early Tom and Jerry, even Tom and Jerry through the 60s and Bugs Bunny, that was all, well, I mean... You think about Elmer Fudd with his gun. Right. Those were the cartoons when I was a kid. It was really violent. And the Roadrunner. 
that kind of stuff. Paul continues, we can place it in a safe place because we know it's not real. It's not a news story. So, I mean, he knows what he's talking about. And so it ends up on side one, Happy Road. <laughs> then finally, their discussion ends with them talking about what we were talking about earlier, that the other Beatles were not fond of it but paul still goes you know the recording sessions were always good the minute we sat down to make a song we were good our sort of (laughs) skills came out and so i think we all enjoyed being in this little skillful company where ringo would do that and george would play that then the line which is actually my favorite line out of this whole episode john would do that which was slightly more eccentric and i would do that on bass or piano or whatever so there was a great joy in that. Leave it to John. That then ends episode three of the Life in Lyrics podcast. We're out of Maxwell. Maxwell is one of the shorter episodes of this series. So we learned a little bit. We did. And it's entertaining to listen to. And I feel a lot better now versus what I felt 50 years ago. <laughs> I'm not as confused, <laughs> folks. And I might just leave it on Abbey Road. I used to, I literally would skip that song. All right. On to episode four, you know, they had to do a yesterday episode. That's right. And they do. They did it yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday, they were talking about yesterday. I really like the way they begin this with this uh, super cut with, oh, it's like a dozen different versions of yesterday. Four or five different languages at the end there. I know, it's like 0.001% of the covers. Because there's a thousand million covers. <laughs> we go into the intro, and that is exactly what he talks about on the other side. The magic didn't end with our recording, and Paul realized there's tens of thousands of covers, and I haven't heard most of them. It is amazing how many covers and who covered this song and who continues to cover the song to this day. They could have just stopped you know, right there and retired just from this <laughs> one simple song. George Martin deserves more credit on the Beatles arrangement of it than he is given. It should have been McCartney Martin song. It could have been. I don't know if should is quite right, but as I say, George Martin deserved a little bit more credit than he usually gets. Paul says that he had a publicist and he said, uh, well, just get me the top 10 versions. That'll do for now. (laughs) Amongst those versions were Sinatra, Elvis, Marvin Gaye, and Ray Charles. Marvin Gaye is an awesome, awesome version of this song. All sorts of unbelievable people who sung it. And the list continues to go on. I think Elvis even played it. Paul mentions that that was one of the ones he got. Oh, God, this is incredible. But Sinatra, Elvis, and Marvin Gaye all altered the lyric. I must have said something wrong. Now I long for yesterday. Because they were macho men, they said, why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say, I must have done something wrong. Rather than I did something wrong. Yeah. Because I don't do things wrong. I'm Sinatra, I'm Elvis, I'm Marvin Gaye. I must have done something wrong. I love that. It was like, disclaimer. 
Covered by so many of the great artists of the 20th century and beyond, Paul McCartney's Yesterday has taken its place among the timeless standards of our age. Yeah, there's just a little couple of things there that they had to punctuate, and they they changed the lyric. I think that kind of got under Paul's skin, maybe. <laughs> the original lyric is, I said something wrong, but all three of them changed that into, I must have done something wrong it's not well i don't know if i did something wrong maybe i did you know she thinks i did but no i I didn't do anything wrong (laughs) it's not decisive right unlike mccartney they are not willing to take the blame on themselves (laughs) as paul says i love that disclaimer Absolutely. That's right. On to a little bit of chat about living with the Ashers at 57 Wimpole Street. Yeah, it seems like he's becoming more open, speaking about Jane and the family. Clearly, during the course of these interviews, Muldoon has gotten him to talk about Jane more than he ever has in his entire life almost. Yes. Since he broke up with Jane. And I mean, you know, they, they did enough hours of it. That's yet another reason why I would love for them to just take the unedited tapes, put them up on the internet. You know, it was a pleasant relationship. And he, oh, sure, sure, know, sure. And, and mean, he became you know, friends with Peter Asher. And I think he liked the family. You know, he hadn't really had much of a family life since Mary McCartney died. Yeah. And the Ashers were also very much like, Jim and that they were into word games and playing things at the dinner table, little brain teasers. And Paul very much liked that. It was a very family, homey kind of thing. Yeah, a little family atmosphere. And then he was in the attic, right? His room was... Across from Peter's, yeah. Across from Jane's room. (laughs) That as well, yeah. I think Jane was down the hall. You know that he snuck over on occasion. (laughs) That's right. Just 10 feet away. Eddie mentions the mom was a great cook. Yeah, I love it. I mean, again, with two of the other three Beatles being bachelors and living off in London, Paul was always the homebody. But what they don't tell you is what we now know that the dream was actually in December of 63. So, you know, it was two years before they recorded it. And this was right in the thick of Beatlemania, right before Paul would go to America, was when the tune to Yesterday came to him. That's interesting. Earlier than I thought. I think we've known that for a little while, but it's fascinating that he sat on the tune for two years. Even if it took him a year to get the lyrics, and we do get to hear about how Paul actually came up with the lyrics. He went from scrambled eggs to hard-boiled eggs to baby how I love your legs to finally yesterday. The Jimmy Fallon version where he does actually sing scrambled eggs. When discussing... Wimpole Street. Once again, it turns out that there was a play which was dramatized on the BBC called The Barretts of Wimpole Street. The Barretts of Wimpole Street. The year is 1845. The place, London. The Barretts of Wimpole Street was a 1930 play about star-crossed lovers. Another play. He loves to get influenced by... By media, I mean... Right, right. It is kind of interesting and kind of cool. So literally, you're like two houses down from the place that this play was set in. Right. Paul talks about living in there. Attic room, perfect for an artist. I managed to get a sawed-off piano in there. (laughs) 
How would you get the piano up there? They probably disassemble it. <laughs> disassemble it or a lift? Maybe they went in the back window, the one that Paul had to crawl out of on occasion. Right. We, we get that story on the... 1964 book Paul has told us about how he would go out, crawl out the window, climb along the ledge into the neighbor's apartment, and then take his lift right. down to the garage to escape the fans. He would go through the Sergeant Major's apartment, <laughs> right? It was some military exactly. man. <laughs> now we get the usual story. He's like, well, I dreamed this thing. Piano next to his bed. He figured out the tunes. He remembered the tune, but he thought it wasn't his. He didn't just fall out of bed and comb his hair. He actually fell out of bed and played the tune. <laughs> Fred Astaire, Colt Porter, could this be some sort of old standard? Wasn't he a little paranoid about ripping someone off? But he wanted to guarantee that anything he did with the Beatles was his or his and John's. Right. He says that he really likes the two opening chords of Yesterday. That's really kind of cool. Is it in G or F? I think he plays it in G. On some music books, it's an F. So, you know, you just get those two opening chords and wow. That was just a melody. I heard it in my head and it was very clear. From there, it's a really simple song to play. And then having the orchestra. It's the arrangement which really makes it something special. Right. Otherwise, it would be a nice little acoustic ballad. Kind of the way he's done it through the years when it's just him and the guitar. It's nice, but if that were the only version, it would just be another bluebird or something. In the 66 tour, they did it live with the band. Ring up my drums. I think George Harrison's comment was, what can we do on that? We can't do anything. <laughs> well, they did. Live. Well, uh, live they did, yes. So Paul continues. So I had this tune... And I think the first person I saw was John. I said, what's this? Been bugging me. What's this song? I think he'd hear him know it. Da da da. Da 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 So I know that. So I don't know. I just thought of it. I dreamed it. It's like, he said, I don't know. I've never heard it. So then I went to George Martin. We must have been doing sessions at the time. He'll know it. He's got a much wider knowledge, as he would know. Mm. I said, what's this? So I don't know. I said, well, I don't know. I dreamed it. Anyway, after a couple of weeks of this, it became clear that no one knew it, and it didn't exist, except in my head. And back then, they didn't have a little recorder. Exactly. He didn't have an iPhone. and Oh, he probably did have a... Tape. Some, well, probably not a cassette, but a little reel-to-reel. Not cassettes yet, yeah. although the cassettes were coming. Yeah. That's something we didn't mention in the news is that one other thing which has come out today is Ringo had an audio diary on the 66 tour. There's like five tapes, close to four hours of Ringo and Brian Epstein. And, oh, wow. On cassette. Yeah, on cassette. cassette. There's like four cassette tapes. So that is probably some of the earliest cassette tapes. Okay. So we actually have some documentation of them on the road while they were in Japan through to their trip in the Philippines. Ooh, but. sounds like something they can include in the biopic. <laughs> could be, uh. could be. <laughs> I listen for your footsteps coming up the drive. Listen for your footsteps. Oh, I'm sorry, I went into the wrong key there. Start again. 
something else that I would hope that they release. Who knows? Maybe that's the next podcast project from mm-hmm. one or more of the Beatles. Is a, mm-hmm. They can take that and then create some stories out of Ringo's storytelling. Mr. Conductor, right? You put it on You put it on Mr. Conductor up here from you. <laughs> that's right. Hello, children. On to our story. Thomas. <laughs> Ferdinand Marcos was not a nice man. But his wife had plenty of shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Muldoon brings up Allen Ginsberg's statement that the first thought is the best thought. And Paul kind of agrees and kind of disagrees to that. Well, it would have been scrambled eggs otherwise. Paul then talks about, well, okay, if it's mine, why is it that this tune came to me? And he talks about listening to the radio, listening to the BBC as a kid, and certainly all of the tunes that his dad would play at the family parties. Yeah, that's. I found that very interesting. So a lot of subconsciousness. In particular, he mentions My Funny Valentine and mm-hmm. Cheek to Cheek, the Fred Astaire, Heaven, I'm right, in right. Heaven, which will actually come up again in another episode. For another song. It was magical. Do you believe in magic? Well, I have to because of that song. It happens in many ways. I like Paul's statement. I think I loaded up my computer. Cheek to cheek, stardust, when I fall in love by Nat King Cole. I remember hearing all that in Forthland Road, reaching for an HP bottle, thinking, my God, this is good. This is class. Yeah. Paul really liked that stuff. All the standards, you know, he loved it. And it was stored in that brain of his. Very sophisticated computer, the human brain. Somehow, as a dream, it just tumbled out this song. The dream wasn't over. It was just starting. There were still four years before that would happen. Right. So now he talks about writing the lyrics. The lyrics actually came about when he and Jane Asher went on vacation to Portugal. Again, the sort of thing we've heard from Paul that what he really likes and he when he feels he's at his most creative is just that little twilight when you're sort of half asleep and you're not quite falling asleep, but you're just a little bit drowsy. Since this was an era before iPhones and anything to distract you, it was just him and well, he's certainly not gonna talk to Jane for this three hour car ride. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) He kind of half drifts off, and and the word yesterday comes to him as a nice three-syllable word. And the rest is... The rest is history, as they say. And they were in Spain because they were going to stay with their friend Bruce Welch, who was a member of Cliff Richard's Shadows. Oh, okay. Bruce Welch would say that when they got there, that would be the first public performance of the completed yesterday. Again, he's... Talking more openly about, you know, his time with Jane Asher. I wonder if Nancy knew about all this story. <laughs> She's learning from these podcasts. Yeah. Linda would have heard all those stories, but not that he sits around telling Nancy Beatles stories all the time. But would she know? Maybe, maybe not. She knows now. If you heard the show, it's like, no, Paul, we've got other things to do. Yeah, but she sounds like uh, she's pretty cool about everything. I think so. Yeah. Again, Paul talks about how he comes up with lyrics. You try enough stuff that's wrong. How do you know when it's right? How I think you, you know? try enough stuff that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Scrambled eggs is wrong. Mm-hmm. And you try punctually. Sounds like punching someone. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately. No, it's not right. Yesterday. Okay, you've got it. It just slots in like a a slot machine. You know, yeah, that's that's the word. 
to use. Uh, and then just run with it. All the lyrics starting to come together. Once he got that one word, it implies longing and sadness, and that then takes him out. And I also remember thinking, people like sad songs. And he likes sad songs. It's a place where we can put our sorrow for three minutes. That's a lyric. It sounds like a lyric, a place yeah. to put our sorrow, you know. Yeah. You can go take that and write a song based on that lyric. Oh, okay. We get John Stone. And then <laughs> New get a, theme song. Right. Then Paul gets a little philosophical. Well, how much gold can you find in a mine? Is it an endless supply? Maybe so, but it's not the original quality. I had the original vein, though, and I still enjoy digging it up just as much. So, right. I mean, he's almost saying that I'm not going to write another yesterday. But he has. I would agree. There are solo songs which are certainly of the class of yesterday. Yeah. Then the rest of that story about when they got to Bruce Welch's house and Paul was all excited because he had the lyrics. Have you got a guitar? Have you got a guitar? Have you got a guitar? He said, well, yeah. He said, but you're a lefty, aren't you? It's right, isn't it? I said, yeah, it doesn't matter. Because I was used to turning them upside down because I worked with John a lot. So I had to grab mm. his guitar and I could, so I could play upside down, so could he. So I grabbed this thing and I, I know the chords because I'd written them on the piano. So I go, oh, wait a minute. So I just had an idea coming down. So he said, you sang it for me. He said, and that was the first public performance ever of yesterday. You sang it to me in my flat in Albufeira. The only thing that was not done at that point was the middle eight, which he completed when they returned home to England. Yeah, he did that later. By that point, it just, it was flowing. So Paul reflects on the lyrics, half the man I used to be, I was 24, half of that is 12. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, 24, so young. Again, the tune was written in, or dreamed in 63, Three? so he was 20 yeah. when he oh, came okay. up with the yeah. tune. Right. Well, 21. Okay. 21. Half of 21 is 10 and a half. <laughs> he hadn't had the lyrics yet, so we can't count it. But uh, Doesn't he talk about an incident with his mom that may have inspired something in this song? He kind of half believes and half doesn't believe that this is a song about his mother. I mean... All the amateur psychologists, including us, have at various times said, oh, oh, of course he's singing about Mary. Why she had to go, I don't know. But the next line, Paul does know, or at least feels that it was, it was based on an experience with his mother. Yeah. yeah. Did I say something wrong? You know, it may be, because there's so much tumbled into your youth. Of course there is. Uh, and your formative years, that you can't. Appreciate it all. Sometimes it's only in retrospect you can appreciate it. And you look. I remember very clearly one day feeling very embarrassed because I embarrassed my mum. We were out in the backyard and she talked posh compared to her because she was of Irish origin and she was a nurse. So she was above street level. Mm -hmm. So she had something sort of going for her and she would talk. Which we thought was a little bit posh. And it was a little bit Welshy as well. She had connections. Her Auntie Dillis was Welsh. And so she talked a little bit this. And I remember she said something like, Paul, will you ask him if he's going to? I went, ask, ask. It's ask, Mum. You know. And she's got, got a little embarrassed. I remember later thinking, God, I wish I'd never said that. And it stuck with me, mm -hmm. you know. In, in, after she died, I thought, oh, fuck, I really wish. I, I got a couple of those little things. Mm -hmm. the, the, I know the people would forgive me, because they're not big things. Of course not. They're little things, but 
the little things that I just think, if I could just take a rubber, just rub that little moment out, it'd be better. So they move on. The story we had spoken of earlier, we're a rock combo. I'm not going to do classical. I'm not going to do any strings on it. Of course not. Again, George Martin in his bedside manner. Well, we'll try it. And if you don't like it, we'll take it off. It's amazing. I really like Paul's description that follows the, the way George arranged it. That one note went to a cello, the next higher note went to the viola, the next higher note went to the second violin, and then finally the, the top note went to the top violin. Right. That it's very much how Bach would have voiced a tune like that. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful instrumental. Paul almost slightly jealous. Yeah, you know, rock and roll chords are all in one octave. Is high or low? <laughs> <laughs> then as we get toward the end of the episode, you have George's introduction from the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, I was a little bit surprised they didn't play the Blackpool Night Out one, the much more famous for Paul McCarty of Allerton Liverpool opportunity knocks they play the sullivan intro he didn't tell the story he always likes to tell which is oh we were behind the curtain and then the curtain puller said there's 50 million people out there watching just <laughs> as he the, pulled the curtain and the curtain opens this could have been easily if we rewrite history the beginning of Paul's solo career. Since we're talking about dramatizations, there's a little half-hour dramatization of that which makes exactly that point called Scrambled Eggs. It shows up on Showtime sometimes, and you can find it on YouTube in its entirety. It is fictionalized Beatles, but I like it because they have most of the Asher clan in there. No Peter, because apparently when this happened, Peter was still off at school. Yeah. But didn't Dave Dexter had some kind of inclination about doing a solo album with Paul? Capital actually yeah. went out and mocked up some cover art for a Paul McCartney solo album right around yesterday and today. Yeah. We don't know what would have been on it, but yesterday was what influenced them at Capitol to do that. And whether they were thinking, oh, he can re-record versions of Beatles songs with just McCartney, or if they were just going to take McCartney-led Beatles tunes and put them together into a compilation album, Bruce Spicer has not told us that. Right, right. And he may not know. All he knows is he's found the documentation. That didn't happen. He stayed with the Beatles for a few more years. It wasn't like they were breaking up the Beatles. It's just they no. wanted to put out a McCartney solo album right in 1966 so the episode ends with paul admitting that he's a pretty complex character you don't come from being a schoolboy in liverpool to where i am now without having some complexity we thought john was the complex one but paul was very much they both were they both were yeah i think the thing you want to get is complex simplicity or simple complexity you want to get a little bit of depth into it if you write good songs and make it look easy what you don't want to forget is all the stuff that went on before it went on. Then he tells a story about a friend of his. They went to a Cezanne display. And as we've seen with many other artist types, what they learn in school is how to do these really amazing drawings, which are, you know, lifelike drawings or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they went through the display and they got to the end. My friend came out thinking he couldn't draw for Toffee. He said, why didn't he... Stick with that. Mm. He ended up with the bathers. And if you look at the drawing on that, it would appear to be hopeless. I mean, it's, you know, someone would say, I could, I could definitely do the better than that. This is what happens, but everyone who goes to an academy can pretty much do that. Because mm -hmm. they have to, to, to get the degree. But what he goes on to do, based on that skill, mm -hmm. 
is something else. It had gotten progressively more abstract as they proceeded through this display. But what Paul remembers was the early, the lifelike figures. And it's like, okay, that's where you start from. You start by sort of imitating what's out there. Then you make it fancy. Right. Paul closes out. I think it's easy to write a song because they had a little discussion about, is it easy or is it hard to write a song? And Paul comes to the conclusion that it's easy if you had the proper experience, all the stuff that went on before. Well, all I know is all you need is love. That's easy. <laughs> all right. So we are now on to episode three, the episode which is out right now. Picasso's last words. That is on the... 50th anniversary you can hear the uh and we did just talk about it the song at least uh, the underdub of band on the run this is one of my favorite songs on that album you know it starts off with a story which is fairly familiar to all of us who have listened to mccartney talking about these things before dustin hoffman coming up to paul and asking him if he can write a song about anything he was daring him to write a song, wasn't he? <laughs> a it dare. became a dare, but it's like, can you write a song about anything? And then Paul goes, well, maybe. And then he comes back with a Time magazine, although at the beginning, the interview clip describes it as a newspaper article, but it's, it is actually uh, from Time magazine. Yeah. They play a little bit of a demo. It's another one of those, I don't know what that is. Dustin Hoffman said to me, can you write a song about anything? I said, well, I don't know, maybe, you know. You know I can't drink anymore. Yeah, drink to me, drink to my health. You know I can't drink anymore. It's definitely not the underdub version. Do you think maybe that is the infamous Wings copy of Picasso? The copy that was stolen? Could be. I won't say yes, I won't say no, but it's a possibility. It's definitely not yeah. the demo we've had all these years. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I McCartney mean, there's no have... reason why it should sound as crappy as it does here, but maybe they intentionally crappied it up. Well, oh, you know, yeah. we'll let them hear it, but we don't want them to copy it. Well, McCartney probably had the little tape there and said, hey, just put this on, but just put a <laughs> few seconds, you just know. Just put a few seconds of it, we'll yeah. Tantalize Ed. Whatever <laughs> it is, it's cool and it's unique. Most definitely. So, you know, he continues with his story. 1973, Montego Bay in Jamaica. Dustin Hoffman was filming uh, Papillon. Papillon. He came up with this Time Magazine article. They then play a little bit of somebody reading from this Time Magazine article. The day before he died had been a day like many others at Notre-Dame-de-Vie, his hilltop villa at Mougins on the French Riviera. The actual article is available on the internet, so it is actually the article that this voice is reading. That voice sounds an awful lot like a computer-generated Siri-type voice to me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know why they would have done that, why they wouldn't have just brought somebody who reads French to come in and no, yeah. oh here read these lines but yeah, it may not be but it does sound an awful lot like an AI voice to me well you can do a lot with AI these days folks this is true so Paul continues well I did happen to have my guitar with me when doesn't Paul have his guitar with him <laughs> it reminds me of the time when he was on Johnny Carson and he reaches back and pops out a guitar. Yeah, although that, that wasn't his. It was Johnny who actually provided that guitar to him. But It just uh, happened to be there. Much like when George Harrison was on the thing with Ravi Shankar, and they just happened to hand him a guitar. 
Yeah. So as Paul describes it, I hit a chord and started singing a melody to these words. <laughs> and Dustin Hoffman was just flabbergasted. He started screaming to, I guess, his wife at the time. Or And we get Paul doing a little Dustin Hoffman and Annie, come here, Annie. Look at this. I just gave him this. And listen, he's got this on. Then that merges into an actual interview clip with Dustin Hoffman, where, where he says, it's right there under childbirth in great events in my life. Although I can kind of see that. If oh, you're there yeah. and you, not only do you witness Paul McCartney creating a song, you it's a song that you influence him to create. It's like, wow. Here's another McCartney Hoffman song. <laughs> He didn't get credit for it. Maybe because he wasn't playing his Hoffman bass, huh? <laughs> oh, da da da. If you make bad jokes, I make bad jokes. There you go. Where are you, Marv? <laughs> <laughs> so they continue. I like the words. I'm going to kind of set it up, Paul continues. The fact the speaker is in this scene is very important. It's the beauty of that which brings the listener into the story. And I will say, this episode is almost as much a Paul Muldoon episode as it is a Paul McCartney episode. Yeah. Yeah, true. Uh, and Muldoon actually does have some insightful things in here, but you will notice that they probably had a little bit less than they wanted on the tape. So Muldoon had to record a bit more voiceover to fill in some of these gaps. Yeah, and they start kind of getting off to more band on the run. Really what they're talking about here is the idea of musicality and language, that mm-hmm. there's a rhythm to the words. They're starting to get deep now. Which they do sometimes. Yeah. Paul goes on and says, you know, much like we were talking about, that when you find the right word, you know it, and it makes the song. Sometimes you have to alter a word because it just doesn't quite fit with the meter. Maybe a two-syllable word or a one-syllable word, or maybe the other way around. And what he's talking about is the fact that he really likes naturalistic speak. He likes to write lyrics which either came out of someone's mouth or sound like they came out yeah, of someone's Yeah, it has mouth. to roll out of the tongue just smoothly. Even if it doesn't make sense to the song, having a a word goes with the flow of the song. And Paul makes a little joke here. When the rhythm doesn't sound natural, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And you all know how those stick out. Right. (laughs) Then Muldoon comes up with something which, while I'd heard the song, I had only sort of vaguely made this association. There was a song which Johnny Cash covered a ben johnson song called drink to me with thine eyes i think paul was kind of a little taken back about that says well you're accusing me of plagiarism the tune is completely different but it it is the drink to me is indeed the first part of that song yeah i think it's just coincidence there's a little bit of rhythmic similarity to it yeah maybe if nothing else it's interesting doing too much research there muldoon (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad muldoon mentioned it Uh, i think asking paul that question is maybe a little bit more if the answer had been yes then that would have been one thing but paul just saying no it's like okay i would have just kind of ended it there if it were me yeah she's so fine my sweet lord (laughs) you're just opening a can of worms there (laughs) where's off ben johnson's now in the public domain there you go second off we're we're late enough that uh, no one's going to be suing that's right it's 50 how many years later (laughs) exactly well 50 years since drink to me it's close to 100 since uh the Ben Johnson tune. <laughs> Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. Would you have been conscious of Ben Johnson's or some version of Ben Johnson's song, Drink to me only with thine eyes, or whatever it is? Yes. It's, it's, it's sort of an ancient. There. 
Yes. You shouldn't. Drink to me only with thine eyes, yes. and I will drink to thee. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it. I mean, yeah, I didn't think of that because the whole thought here was just the challenge of doing it for Dustin. So to get out of that, you know, McCartney <laughs> talks about uh, even if he didn't realize it, you know, Dustin Hoffman would have had a knack for language, knowing what a good melodic phrase is. And, and I can see that. Change the subject. Quick, quick, quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when he read the quote, Dustin, I'm guessing he would think this flows. And then you would get a little bit of Paul reciting meter. Bump, bump, bump. Bum, 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 you know, it's like a nice little mathematical equation. Back into the Dustin Hoffman interview clip where he talks about how it's kind of ironic that Picasso would say these words. If you heard the song, if you heard the story, Pablo Picasso and his wife had had a dinner party and the dinner party was going on. Picasso knew he had to finish up some stuff for a show, which was coming up during the next week. He was going to have a show. And right. so he knew what his limits were on what he could drink. When he said it to his dinner guests, he was referring to the fact that, oh, well, you know, I have to work later, so I can't drink with you anymore this evening. Have a good time. Drink to me. Drink to my health. You know, I can't drink anymore. And indeed, he did go and work from 3 o'clock in the morning to some unspecified time. And, well, he fell over dead. Crazy. Kind of bringing those two thoughts together. I agree with Dustin Hoffman's suggestion and put it to music. It's nice. That's a little bit of an understatement, Paul. Yeah, this is definitely. a really good song. I agree. They move into one of those changes which you had mentioned earlier. The little French underneath and... They describe it as being an advertisement for a French tourist service, which I think I knew, but it's interesting to have it here. And they talk a little bit more about the extent of what was being advertised. It was plane fares and it was about what we now refer to as Airbnbs, but mm -hmm. homes for rent in the French countryside. And the neat thing about the underdub, you can hear some of the outtakes of this little French speak conversation. This is before they found this tape and put it on. Some of that is real French. Some of that is just Paul and Linda doing mock French. No. Muldoon then continues, why are you doing this? Why are you kind of moving out of your song and, and moving on to such abstract things? That's what Paul does. Muldoon continues that McCartney was a painter and a photographer. Paul says, what used to make me scared when I would paint something is that I always thought it must be meaningful. It must be something deep as we were just saying yeah and they were looking at one of bill de koenig's newest works and paul goes well what is it what does it mean and de koenig turns around i don't know I don't it's know. like a couch <laughs> so paul then took that to heart it means that nothing has to mean anything and that was quite a liberating idea yeah you don't have to take it quite literally you know <laughs> Well, I mean, we know Paul is good at coming up with lyrics that don't mean anything when he <laughs> yeah. wants to as well. Yeah. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silverhammer. <laughs> Here's where we kind of start with the uh, little snippets of other songs from Man on the Run that, that show up in here. Yeah. A little of rock opera. <laughs> so it's like, well, why Jet? Paul goes, you know, I had loads of tricks I could use. And one of the tricks was shouting. And it's not just Paul who does that. I mean, it's one of those things you learn pretty early on when you're playing music on stage is, oh, let's just do a quick medley here. 
Yeah, why not? Bring in little pieces just because here's some chords which will lead me to this other song. And then always at the end, you come back to the song you started with. Right. Our good friend Darren Murphy, back in the Trish and Darren days, they always used to end their show like that, remember? They played that song that their dad wrote, and, and it would just go off and wander to all sorts of places before they came back they around came back to, to it to end it. the show. Yeah. But this was kind of interesting that Paul talks about how Jet starts. Here they're talking a little bit less about the medley, although they do get back to this before the end of this episode. Choose a word. It works. The shouting and Muldoon then brings up that there's a new translation of Beowulf. And the very first word in this translation is what? What? And McCartney gets it. It's like, oh, it's exactly like Chet. Then Muldoon reveals it. Yeah. What my thought is, is that it was meant to accompany the first Strom of the Liar in the play when it was being performed as a play. Okay. I think that's actually really pretty cool. Mm -hmm. The famous Jet Pony story. Although, as we also know, Jet was one of their puppies. That's right. So take your pick which one you want to believe. Either one will do. Then on to the Mrs. Vanderbilt excerpt, which McCartney describes as his rejection of an aristocratic lifestyle. And then he changed the name. It was... He took the R out for whatever right. reason. Yeah. So... Vanderbilt. Gloria Vanderbilt of the Vanderbilt family. Ho, hey, ho. <laughs> so paul continues the reporters always used to ask them are you worried that you joined the establishment we didn't know we thought it was a club <laughs> which it actually was in london and, and he says that as well it was uh, one of those interviews from a hard day's night right <laughs> yeah exactly or the one in 64 when they landed at jfk yeah, that would fit them. in there as oh well. yeah yeah it's kind of the same thing when john lennon was doing the ad lab with peter cook and dudley moore it's the same idea it's like right. oh it's a, it's a fancy nightclub so you know all of that is the same <laughs> laboratory and then paul just well we knew what they meant what they were asking muldoon making a callback to the band on the run episode <laughs> where where they where they spend lots of talking time talking about desperado the eagle song well you weren't being much of a desperado then no <laughs> then paul continues as you were saying the name just came about because you do a family feud and ask for five rich people's names you're gonna get rockefeller getty and vanderbilt and now mccartney that is kind of what he says after that is uh, that what he meant by that joke was that he, he didn't want that. He didn't want the associations that come with being one of those types. Even though you have money, it's not like you have to belong to that strata of society. Yeah. I don't want that. I know it's money, it's rich and everything, but what comes with it is bothersome. I will never listen to the song again the same, folks. <laughs> <laughs> then Muldoon really dies deep into it a little bit. Listen to uh, this podcast with the warning label. <laughs> take some open ears and <laughs> there you go. some serious thought when you are listening. Don't be like Paul and listen to this when you're drifting off to sleep. Light a candle. Has the notion of all songs being one song? All songs. Yeah. Are I'm prompted partly because in the literary sphere, in the strictly literary sphere, Wallace Stevens thinks of his poems as being one poem. The whole of harmonium, he calls it. It's all one thing. It's as if he spent his whole life writing one big poem. Mm. I mean, obviously they're discreet, they're about separate things, but, I mean, does it mean anything to you at all that Stevens might have thought in those terms? 
that you're doing one song? Your life is about writing one song, or is that just too crazy and fanciful? Okay, from Love Me Do to Now and Then. It's one <laughs> exactly. long song. Obviously, Muldoon makes that same association. It's like, yeah. well, you know, do you think that? And Paul is a little bit nonplussed at that thought. Right. Well, it's a little bit of a stretch for me. My stuff is quite varied. They don't neatly fit together. Tell them, Paul. Tell them. <laughs> so that then brings us back around to this medley. They finally explain what Paul thinks of the medley, that he's not really striving for a cohesion. He's being like Picasso. Exactly. That the reason for having all these little bits is to bring together the song fragments with sharp edges. Yeah. It's amazing that all these little medley bits work together so well, but maybe they work together so well because Paul wants them to work together so well. Yeah, and it and it does. It falls into place. It does. It, it all falls into place really neatly, and yeah. that's one of my favorite things about the version of this song on the underdub. You can hear the edits, but you can also hear Paul's thinking almost. And yes. Like, okay. Definitely. We're going to have this little bit of Jet here, and we're going to have this little bit of Mrs. Vanderbilt, and then, of course, it ends with the band on the run. You know, uh, and, and listening to this album back when it was released for the first time, this definitely brought me back to a Beatle, Abbey Road era type of song. It's the same thing that Side 2 of Abbey Road is. It's the same sort of idea, let's right. say. It was sweet. A musical form of cubism, the very style that Picasso pioneered. So I like that. Definitely. So we end this episode next up, and what we will cover first up next time we return to this topic in a couple weeks. The next song is Silly Love Songs. Oh, not one of those songs. <laughs> we get a little clip of Paul, which we will also get again in the episode. I was being accused of just writing silly love songs and in danger of buying into the idea you should just be a bit tougher and a bit more worldly. Then I realized that's what love is, worldly. Very nice. No, enough said, Paul. <laughs> enough said. All right. So that is episodes three, four, and five of the Life and Lyrics podcast. Next week, you're going to be with us again. Yeah, I think I'm going to hang around for at least another week, and then it's going to be off to then it's off, my trips. Off on the road for a little while. On the while, road but again. We're, but we're going to be covering <laughs> next time is George Harrison's birthday just passed, is a, the 81st anniversary of his yeah. birth, whichever day you choose to believe. So we're going to go back to 1986. And while it's not just a George Harrison special, it is George Harrison and Carl Perkins. We're going to talk about the special. We're going to talk a little bit about the relationship that George and Carl developed through the, Carl's later years. All right. I'm really looking forward to that one. See you then. Be safe, folks. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. A few months before the album, I'd been on holiday and I'd met Dustin Hoffman. And he was talking about how do you write songs? 
He said, how do you write them? You know, I can't do his accent. He's American. So how, how do you write songs, man? And I was saying, um, well, you just sort of, sort of do it. Kind of pick them out the air and you just sort of, there they are, you know. I don't know, really. He said, could you write one just now? I said, I don't know. Yeah, I'd have a go, kind of thing. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll, I'll get you something to write a song about. He said, I saw something great today. So he went and he got a, his copy of Time magazine. Somehow we got into a conversation about Picasso because Picasso had just died, I think, a, a few weeks before. And I talked about Picasso's, because I'd read all about his last days before he died. I think he was 91 or 92 years old when he died. And I was telling Paul all this, and at the night before, he said a rather prophetic thing, and he said it in French. He raised his glass to the people at the table at the conclusion of dinner to toast himself. In, in French, he said to his friends, drink to me, drink to my health. You know I can't drink anymore. And in some strange way, you know I can't drink anymore also means it's the last time I'm going to be doing this with my friends because I'm going to die in a few hours. And I was saying this all to Paul McCartney. He just started strumming, and I swear by all that's holy that he began singing this song of the story that I had just told him about Picasso. It just came out of him. I mean, the fact is, is that he didn't come back the next day. He didn't even start fiddling around. It was literally immediate. I finished the story, and he strummed his guitar and and played it back. Drink to me, drink to my health. You know I can't drink anymore. Say drink to me, drink to my health. You know I can't drink anymore. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. McCartney, A Life in Lyrics is a co-production between iHeartMedia, NPL and Pushkin Industries.